This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, Season 2, Episode 1. And welcome to Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Oh, I forgot. Brought to you by... Shoot. I was wondering if we are going to throw that in later. Or... Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Easier to start over, I guess. We have a we have a title sponsor now, guys. So uh, a little different in the uh, everything's changed about the intro, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Here we go, and welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, and brought to you by XS Sites. I am your host, Riley Bowman. Today is Wednesday, May fifth, Cinco de Mayo, as people like to point out. A silly American holiday. <clears throat> and <laughs> today's co-host and co-founder of All Things Awesome, Jacob Paulson. Yep. You know, people make fun of us. But in my experience, which is personal and direct, countries in Latin America, for which we think Cinco de Mayo is credited, they also look for any excuse to have a party and a holiday. Yes. Yep. Yep. Anyway, we hope everybody's having a great time and that you are safe partying or not partying wherever you may be. Today's episode is sponsored by LASRapp.com, LASRapp.com, makers of the fine LaserX software, which is my my choice for dry fire training software. We're going to talk about that some today as we discuss today's topic and also today's episode sponsored by next level training <clears throat> makers of the fine cert pistols in fact i've got the p320 model right here so yes get your get your cert pistol i got glock style models p320 style mmp style and, and be prepared uh, to wait for a while for it yeah. to be shipped to you they are still significantly back ordered, but it, the soonest you're going to get one is to place an order and wait because yes, you, yes. you can wait, hoping the back order will vanish, but uh, it, it doesn't seem to be going away at least any time in the near future. Nope. So this uh, whole COVID-19 situation has impacted all of us in some form or fashion. Uh, many of us, it's impacted our businesses and uh, Next Level Training is one of those that's been impacted in their ability to produce their pistols. But uh, we are still, uh, uh, we still love them and we love the CERT pistols and we are thankful for them being sponsors, not only of this episode, but of the uh, program, if you will, that the series, if you will, that uh, this episode is sponsored by which is the and sponsored or, or inspired by it'd be the better word which is shooter ready challenge and uh the most recent shooter ready challenge videos published last week that is our uh once once a month dry fire training video that we put out on shooterreadychallenge.com and i would encourage you i mean basically the, the whole idea there is to give you guys ideas and tips and suggestions and ways to do dry fire practice. Uh, you know, I, what I found in my early days of doing dry fire is I tended to 
only do like one thing <clears throat> and do it a lot. And the reality is there's a lot of different aspects of carrying a pistol, of shooting a pistol, of drawing a pistol, all, all those sorts of things <clears throat> that can be practiced in dry fire and that we shouldn't get we shouldn't get sort of, you know, what's what one dimensional in our dry fire practice. Uh, we should try to vary it and practice all sorts of things. And there's lots of opportunities to do so, but sometimes coming up with those ideas and ways of doing so is uh, not always readily apparent to us. So shooter aid challenge, I hope is, or can be a, an inspiration for you on how to work on your dry fire. So that's yeah, the today's best way to, yeah, best way to tag along is just go to shooterreadychallenge.com. And uh, on that webpage, you can see all the past Shooter Ready Challenges. And uh, yeah, look, to your point, our hope is that you would you would say, oh, okay, like what am I going to do for my dry fire practice this week or this month? And you would use this video that we're publishing, that Riley's filming and that we're publishing as a company as a, as a way to be inspired on something you can go do for a week or a month even of your dry fire practice. And if you're just now becoming aware of it, you got a pretty good archive, more than a year's worth of those videos. You can go reference. You could, you know, follow along with one of those uh, each week for a while if you wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a pretty decent archive now. That's true. Yeah, if you're just getting started, I mean, as I count them, one, two, three, four, five, six. That's eighteen, nineteen videos. Yeah, October 2019, I think was the first one. Mm-hmm. So it's it's yeah, we've been rolling for a while. Yep. Yep. And we generally try to roll those out or release the, the new ones uh, about the middle of the month, like about the 15th of the month. Uh, sometimes we're a little bit behind. This last one was especially so because I, I couldn't get in to get the, that filmed uh, where I was quarantined due to having COVID-19. Anyway, so that reminds me, I got to like film the next, I got to film Maze like next week. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you do. <laughs> anyway, um, so let me just kind of, provide some context and sort of introduce to you uh, today's topic and also kind of the way, you know, I approached this in this most recent Shooter Aid Challenge video. Um, so type one malfunctions, as they're sometimes called, also failure to fire type malfunctions. And, and what it is, if we were to define a, a type one malfunction very simply, is it's anytime we press a trigger and there's a click instead of a bang. And that's unique and has has a distinctive difference from some other malfunctions where you might have a dead trigger, which usually is a sign that the gun is out of battery, uh, which would indicate that we've had a failure to eject or a failure to extract or something to that effect. So type one malfunction or failure to fire malfunction is very simple in that either we have something in the chamber around in the chamber that for whatever reason, doesn't go bang that could be because it's a bad round it could also be gun related in that maybe your firing pin broke or there's or there's debris in your firing pin channel causing the the striker or firing pin to not go forward at its normal velocity or could be some other things but generally speaking it is a bad round bad primer type situation or we don't have anything in the chamber at all, meaning that you thought you had a loaded gun, but the reality is you did not. Empty chamber, you pressed trigger, it went click, and you're like, oh, snap. So that is essentially a failure to fire malfunctions. Anytime we intend to go bang, but it goes click instead of bang. 
So that's that's the the focus of the uh, shooter raid challenge, and also of this episode today is we're going to break down these types of malfunctions. But then I'll just kind of give the caveat that that this latest um, episode of shooter raid challenge <clears throat> is a little bit different uh, in that I, I just took a little bit different approach, and it was really a way to show you how you could train type one malfunctions, but also gather some data from it using laser app software. And in this case, I use the laser X version, not the classic software. I like the laser X version. I love running it on my iPad, for instance. And, and that, that data that we can garner from that is very useful because we can actually practice uh, type one malfunctions and measure the time that it takes for us to accomplish them. And in the most simplest form, uh, you know, typically in a live fire situation, you would have a bad round or a, an empty chamber and you would press trigger and get a click and then you would clear the malfunction and then you get a bang. In this case, it's a little bit different the way I set it up using the software because I, w I, I really wanted to measure the time between when I go when I press the trigger and get the so-called click to the time that it took me to solve the malfunction and then get what would be in live fire a bang. But in this case, it's simply another click. And in both cases, I have a uh, laser dot trainer from Ready Up Gear in the chamber of the gun which both times I get a laser shot on target, okay? So that initial click and then the second click after clearing the malfunction, and that is a very precise measurement of time of how long clearing malfunction took. So that was, yep. the, that was the concept. And I, I love this. Um, when I watched the, the Shooter Ready Challenge, I was like, yeah, this is really clever because I think sometimes we forget that there are tools out there that allow us to from a very analytical perspective, determine the speed at which something can be accomplished. It reminded me, and I'm not going to get into the detail, but many moons ago, uh, I did a study where I used LASR to determine which types of gun safes were faster to open to get the gun out from and on, on the nightstand, you know, as, as you're sleeping, you know, right. uh, I just set up the software, you know, you get to go beep. I jump out of the bed, open the safe, grab the gun and then press a trigger and boom, you know, laser would give me that analytical you know, data to know, well, how fast was that? And if I do enough repetitions, you take the average. So I, I, that reminded me of, of what you did, because to your point, what you were looking at was, you know, let's establish a baseline of how fast it takes me to clear the malfunction. And I'm sure we'll talk more about the, the malfunction clearing in a moment. But then not only establish a baseline for how, how long it takes me to, to clear that malfunction, but then experiment with some other methodologies to clear the malfunction and determine if they're faster or not for me as an individual. And I think that this, this is an important journey because I think that you've come to a pretty specific personal, you know, clarity as to what methods you prefer and why. But I think that the shooter ready challenge, you, you frame it up in such a way so as to encourage someone to uh, embark on that journey for themselves and determine what works best for them both mechanically in terms of consistency, but also in terms of efficiency and speed. Yes. Yeah, that, that was exact. That's exactly right. That was what I hoped to get from it. Um, there, so, and part of that is almost out of necessity because for me to, um, for me to be true to myself, to be intellectually honest, uh, if I was to do a type one malfunction 
based video, uh, I would do it differently than how most other people would do it. And kind of the more general industry accepted practice would be meaning your tap rack, uh, meaning tap rack, tap magazine. And then, and most people and a lot of instructors uh, would teach like overhand grip the slide, all four fingers on there, meat of the palm, rack the slide that way. Um, I, I've, ch- I've changed away from that. That's where I used to be. Um, so for me, it's like, well, this is how I do it. And there's a very specific reason why I do it and why I've evolved this way. But that may not be what you want to do or what you think is best for you. And so, but let's put it all on a timer and, and measure these things all out. Because the timer is what doesn't lie, right? Like we can perceive. Well, that that was pretty fast. That's you know. See, and the and the trick here is is you might go, you might try different techniques to solve a particular problem, but if you're not putting them on the timer, it's almost impossible. Especially if you're just working alone. But even when you have somebody watching you, speed is a relative thing, and it's it can be really challenging to judge things accurately like there's plenty of times i watched somebody shoot a build drill like the class I was teaching this last weekend i remember a student running a build drill and i thought wow that was that was pretty spicy like i felt like it was pretty close to a two second run but then i was surprised when i looked at the timer and saw it was like 256 or something and i was like you know and, th- and that's that's why it's good to use actual measurement tools and not just rely on our senses or our feel and so the, why this is important when it comes to, to, to testing and determining best methods for ourselves to solve various problems is that I could solve a type 1 malfunction, the very classical way of doing it, and then compare it to this other whatever method that, that is arguably faster. But in the moment, as I test those two, it's like, well, this classical method of solving a type, a type 1 Still seems plenty fast. So, you know, I'm just going to stick with that. Well, that's not an accurate way of looking at it. If the numbers are, you know, if the actual speed of doing something is important to you, if speed is important to you, then it's important you actually measure it with something that's not biased. So I think we need to talk about, you know, both your overhand versus slingshot thing. I think we also need to talk about tapping the mag or not. I think we also need to talk about whether or not your red dot is a contributing factor. Um, and we also need to kind of talk about, you know, speed, but, it, you know, if we if we get speed, but we lose consistency or effectiveness, then that's another concern, too. So those are all things I think we have to hash out to really do this topic mm-hmm. justice. But but just in case anyone's watching and some of these things feel like they're out of context, can I take a second, Riley, and like yep. create the baseline? Yep. So uh, you, I think you already defined this a little bit, just but just to like make sure that we start off on the on the foundation here. Uh, when we talk about malfunctions, we're talking about things that cause the gun to not work. You know, generally, as an industry, we refer to three categories of, of malfunctions. And we're, they're generally referred to as type 1, type 2, and type 3. And in this particular uh, conversation, we're talking about type 1 malfunctions, failure to fire. So you go to press the trigger, you get a click, but no bang. Firing pin is coming forward, but we're not getting you know a bullet exiting the, the, the muzzle. So 
traditionally probably a lot of you know times it's a bad round you know something's wrong with that actual ammunition itself it's not firing could be a variety of magazine issues we could have that the mag is not fully seated could be that there's some sort of spring hang up thing going on in there and it's not feeding the ammunition properly could be that the chamber was empty that, you know that the the magazine was charged into the gun but the, the the slide was not cycled and a round was never loaded into the chamber all those things are caused the type 1 malfunction so the traditional kind of for a long time now, industry best practice methodology is to tap and rack it. And when we say tap and rack, we mean tap with a good solid, you know, you know, meaty part of your hand, the base of the magazine, the mag plate itself. This, in theory, would ensure that it's both fully seated and maybe if there's something screwy going on in there with the spring, it would loosen that up and cause it to now feed ammunition to the top of the magazine correctly. And then to reach over the uh, top of the slide and rack the slide, cycle it as as traditionally would be done. And and most people uh, would you know, generally think that the the most efficient or accurate or consistent reliable method to do so is what we would call an overhand technique, where you're essentially pinching the slide uh, with the fingers, four fingers on one side, and the you know meaty part of your of your palm on the other side, and that's how you're pulling it to the rear. So tap, rack, and release. Uh, has has for a long time been the traditional best practice to clear that type one malfunction. So there you go, Riley. How'd I do on on like laying the groundwork here? Mm-hmm. Yes. So uh, let's let's start with your decision to forego uh, tapping. Yeah. So first of all, let's um, <clears throat> also create some additional context, and let's just talk in terms of. I'm going to start first with. Well, we teach actually at concealedcarry.com in our classes, in my classes, as far as firearm safety rules. And the very first safety rule as we teach it is know the condition of your firearm and always treat it as, as a potentially dangerous tool. So this first rule is really important. And I, so I know that classically the firearm safety rules are like something along the effects of, you know, all guns are loaded or treat all firearms as though they're loaded or something to that effect. And that th- those rules have served us well just fine. But uh, uh, we, sh- we, we shook it up a little bit to apply a, a safety rule to as many situations and conditions as possible. So the idea is that when my, when I want my gun to be unloaded, I need to know the condition that it is in fact unloaded. And when I want my gun loaded, meaning that I'm carrying this thing for defense, it should be in a loaded and ready-to-use condition. I need to know that fact. So why I kind of divert slightly on that little bit of tangent, Jacob, is that the context here is that, number one, before I carry a gun each day, I check and confirm the condition of it. So I check every day that I have a loaded magazine inserted into the gun. I check that I have a round chambered because I carry chambered and I, I want to know that it is in fact chambered. I have made the mistake of carrying unchambered when I intended it to be chambered because I was doing dry fire practice and failed to actually follow through on reloading up the gun. And when on an entire day carrying a gun that had I needed to use it that day, I guarantee you I would have drawn and pressed the trigger and got a click instead of a bang. Okay. <clears throat> So the con- so the first part of the context here, as I view it and how I do things now, is that number one, I've gotten to a, a, a place because of mistakes made in the past, where I always can check and confirm and know the condition of my firearm before I put it in a holster and carry it on my body. 
So I have good confidence and reason to believe that I'm first starting with a loaded magazine that is fully inserted into the gun. It's chambered. It's in a condition that I desire it to be for, ready for use. And then it is inserted into a holster that through experience, I know there is no chance of my magazine release being depressed while it's in the holster. And so I know that until the next time this gun comes out of the holster, that my magazine's inserted and it's locked in place and that's not changing. All right. Now I can hear, by the way, we've got a pretty good thunderstorm going over me right now. So if I lose internet connectivity, just a heads up. It's, anyway, it's moving north to south, I think. Not, yeah. And I'm with you, by the way. And this is new to me. I haven't always done this. This is rel very new to me relatively, like maybe mm -hmm. only the last six months or so. What, since we really adopted those new safety rules, uh, I thought, you know, this is a really good point. So now my, my rule is similar. Every time the gun goes in the holster, that's my rule. If the gun goes into the holster, whether I'm just at the range I got done shooting it or I'm loading up for the morning, whatever it is, anytime I'm going to put the gun in the holster, I get I do the, the function check, right? I yeah. remove magazine, check, make sure it's fully loaded, push on the top to make sure the spring is good, insert it into the gun, pull on it to make sure that it's fully seated, you know, then press check it, you know, then make sure that the, the slide is all the way forward in battery and then reinsert into uh, into the holster that that that's just a call you know i do that now that's what i do mm -hmm. and so yes in theory then uh you know assuming also to your point that the holster i don't have to worry about the holster potentially you know hitting my mag release i should just have a pretty high degree of confidence that my magazine is fully seated yes yep and that it's feeding ammunition that's right so uh, and, and by the way, what you just said there and what I described as far as like checking your equipment every day, to me, that's just the mark of a responsible gun carrier. Like, uh, and again, that's for me, that's come purely from experience and by experience, meaning I've made a lot of mistakes over the years. So, uh, you implement strategies and ways of avoiding or limiting those mistakes in the future. Anyway, so, all right, that's that first piece. So. I assume, and I think very logically and, and rightfully so, that the next time that gun comes out of my holster, should I need to use it, mag's in, my, my mag is inserted and it's locked in place. Okay? So <clears throat> then here's the other thing. If I get a, a failure to fire malfunction during a string of fire, meaning I fired already three or four shots, and all of a sudden I get click instead of bang, well, Here's one thing that we can tell that we, that that tells us. Well, I was able to fire three or four shots already, or two, or however many it is. That tells me magazine was feeding ammo, so it's probably not the result of the magazine coming loose. See what I'm going with that? So yeah, th I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll be a devil's advocate real quick and sure. say that I we I have absolutely definitely seen shooters on a firing line where in the course of fire they have hit their own mag release unknowingly so. And that's where this becomes a and that's why I don't say you must use this technique because it's better, faster, and more efficient. This is something that you need to determine is the right thing for you. Okay. I'm to a point and to a level and have shot X number of tens of thousands of rounds over the last few years. And have developed my grip and everything in such a way that that doesn't, it just doesn't happen. My, the way I grip my pistol, there is a lot of space between my hand and where the magazine releases. So that's where this becomes a personal, uh, a personal decision is, is this the right thing for you? So I know that based on my gun, my grip, the way I shoot, 
my my experience, et cetera, et cetera, that that is an extreme remote possibility. Like hasn't had so the one gun that's happened to me on is the P365. And that I have fixed because I've changed my grip even from that point when I had that issue because I wanted to solve it from being an issue. And the way I changed my grip to prevent the P365 from having that issue with the way I gripped the gun has actually made my grip even more risk averse in terms of hitting the mag release accidentally on my full size 320, which is the primary gun I carry for defense now. So all of that to say that for me, I have eliminated the tap from the tap rack part of clearing the type one malfunction because I believe it is unnecessary based on all that that I gave you. And so, so what does that do? Well, it eliminates at least two tenths, if not more. And at the speed that I run my, you know, run these manipulations and you can watch the whole shoot rate challenge video and see, you know, the speed that I run these manipulations at, which are all right around second or, or, or under a second, sometimes significantly. So my fastest manipulations clearing a type one malfunction without the tap or like, just over a half second, which is pretty, pretty spicy. So for, for me, there's no tap. It's simply, if I get a click instead of bang, rack slide. And that's, that's where I'm at these days with clearing a type one. So is that the right choice for you? Again, you've got to determine that for you. And part of that may be because of your gun, your equipment, the way you carry, your level of experience, whether you're confident or not that you actually get magazines fully inserted, et cetera, et cetera. But your part of your decision sh could or at least, or, or should perhaps be um, based upon efficiency of operations as well, or at least it should be consideration. And that's where we get into this shooter array challenge for April, which of course now it's May. But anyway, so that's, that's what I do in that video is, well, let's test the classical way of solving this. Do the overhand technique. Then I do tap rack with what's more of like a pinch or slingshot type method of working the slide, which I have adopted more um, in recent history. And then by recent history in the last mm, year and a half, two years, thereabouts. Occasionally, I still find myself do the the old overhand, but that's because that that's been it. Just sometimes happens, you know. It's programmed in the brain for from years and years and years ago. Uh, but I have all my dry fire work these days. When I rack the slide, it's either pinching the rear of the slide between thumb and forefinger, or it's pinching the slide between the web of my hand on the front serrations of the slide. And in all honesty, both of those techniques are totally acceptable to me. And if I do one versus the other, the time difference is not significant. We're talking a tenth of a second and they equally perform well for me. So, sorry, yep. long answer, no, but that's, a, that's the logic, how I've evolved. And I think that's solid, right? I mean, the, the the takeaway here is there's a traditional way of doing this, and Riley has made the determination based on, you know, his level of comfort, his level of skill, his own analytic analytical testing, uh, recognizing, you know, the the difference in uh, efficiency and speed, uh, you know, and all those other things that that he said. You know, he's made that decision that that's how how he's going to do this now, uh, to each to each their own, right? But understanding that it's potentially an option. If you can also check some of those same boxes, I think is valuable because it's a both more efficient and you know and faster and 
some of that's the same and some of that is different. So what about you, you, you started to get into this, you know, testing the over the hand, you know, pinch between the palm and the finger, four fingers technique versus the more the slingshot uh, style, you know, just between the thumb and the knuckle kind of idea um, stuff. So you, for, for, I mean, you, you ran this, so you have a sense for how much faster one is over the other. Like what, what was your takeaway? So my takeaway is that between the overhand method, pinching all four fingers in the meaty part of the palm on the rear of the slide compared to running the slingshot or pinch technique um, is that, that the, the slingshot or pinch technique is about two tenths of a second faster typically for me. Um, that may not seem like much, but, uh, um, but Hey, you know, two tenths is two tenths. That's enough time for, for me, especially at least one more shot in the context of things. That means I, I get back on target one shot sooner. If we kind of think in terms of split times between shots, uh, and that might be the difference maker. It might not, but it might be. So see, that's where efficiency is important. And here's, here's the other thing to consider. We think, well, if a malfunction happens, it happens, and I just need to have a reliable technique to solve the malfunction and get back into the fight. And, it, you know, what happens, happens, oh, well. But I'm always thinking in terms of efficiency because if I have a malfunction, what just occurred is that my gun has stopped being a gun. It's turned into a brick. And until I solve that and get it back to being a gun, that's all downtime where I'm not able to engage the target or threat. So any moment in time that we have a gun that's not a gun when we need a gun, that's problematic. And I want to solve it as efficiently as possible. So I'm always looking for more efficient techniques. Um, and those techniques also need to be reliable for me. So let's talk a little bit about the different uh, techniques of grasping the slide. Again, a lot of folks and instructors even these days are teaching kind of the overhand, all four fingers on the slide, meaty part of the palm on the backside of the slide. And, and the logic there is, is, well, that's a lot of contact on the slide and it's therefore more secure and more reliable. I, I, I agree there's a certain logic there, but I think there's also an interesting converse logic. And this was honestly, my eyes were open to this by when I first attended a Dave Spaulding course. And Dave teaches, roll the gun inboard. To, so you're bringing the slide closer to your support hand because you're turning it basically into your support hand. And he says, grasp it like so many other things in our lives that we grasp. Like if you're grasping a rope, if you're pulling a rope, you don't grab it reverse with your hands like this because you get more contact or something like that because that doesn't work as efficiently with your muscles in your body. Um, the, the example I really like that he pointed out is if I was to dangle a $100 bill in your face, and challenge you, hey, if you're fast enough, if you can grab this $100 bill, it's yours. How? Think about how you would grab it. Would you go for all four fingers and palm and try to snatch that out of his hand like this? Or would you grab it more like, you know, I don't know. Like, like you grab a golf club or a baseball yeah, bat. Exactly. That's a good example, actually. And and the and then and that's a great point too. Like 
how we grab a golf club, a baseball bat, a, a, a hammer and things of this nature, um, where a lot of times we, gr- we grasp with the four fingers. That's true. But the thumb is usually placed on top and it might be wrapped around too, but, but a lot of times we do this, right? So the thumb's placed on top of the index finger. And, and, and the, the reality is, is that we're actually quite strong and be able to grasp things that way. Okay. I'm not saying the other way is not that, that the other way is wrong. Okay. I'm just saying, what if grasping the slide this way by pinching it between my thumb and my forefinger can be as effective, especially with practice? That's what, what I'm suggesting here. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to say that this other way is wrong or that it doesn't work. I'm just saying, what if there's another way we can do it and still be effective? And, and if it makes things more efficient, then there's something there to that. And that's where I've gotten to. And the other thing is a lot of times people think in terms of, well, I'm just grabbing it between my thumb and my index finger. That's not true. That's not the right way. You're actually putting thumb all the way down the slide. And then on the opposite side, you've got your entire your your entire index finger engaged and even part into the web of it. Like you're actually engaging pretty much all this material between thumb down through the web and all the way down the index finger if you're doing it correctly. And so you actually get a lot of contact and it's, it's something that's a very natural motion that can be quite strong. Now, some people might not find it as strong for them. Again, this is where you need to understand your personal needs. So anyway, that's, that's kind of the logic between that. And again, by, by turning the gun into the support hand and racking it that way, com- conversely to that, the other method, I have to bring my support hand up over the slide in kind of an awkward, you know, orientation of sorts and work it that way and then bring the hand back down and around and get back on the grip. You see, it's one is just you, we have a shorter distance of travel when we do the slingshot technique versus the overhand technique. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what, what, if any, impact does your red dot have? You know, if someone's listening to this and they, if they were to go watch the Shooter Ready Challenge, which I just did. Mm-hmm. And they see you running all these different variations of, you know, clearing the malfunction and they, and you're calling out the time. Oh, that was 0.9 seconds. So that one was 0.7 seconds. This was point whatever, yeah. uh, you know, our average was this. And if they see all this and say, well, yeah, I mean, but you have this, this red dot. And, and when we're talking about, you know, racking a slide, you know, regardless of overhand or slingshot technique, that red dot is playing a part. Uh, yeah. of this well, for, for the better, for the worse, like a like big what, ledge to grab. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, so what, like, I guess a like yeah does, does red dot help or not? Which I think the answer is an obvious yes. But but does it help more in one of those methodologies than the other? I would say that uh, when I and, and I could I could testify to that right in the shooter raid challenge video this last month, where whether I'm going overhand technique or slingshot pinch technique, uh, both of those get increased. Uh, um, uh, what's the word engagement? Because of the red dot being there, I I, I can feel I can feel because because in the one hand when I go overhand, the edge of the frame you know the the window if you will of that red dot kind of digs into my palm, and when I go pinch technique I I'm basically hooking my thumb slightly on the edge of it as well so so they both get increased engagement because of the red dot being there which is an interesting advantage slash pro that could be mentioned about, Hey, having a red dot on your pistol means you can manipulate it a little bit easier. 
which is not something that's often actually mentioned as a benefit of having Red Dot. Well, and I'm, I'm thinking about non-traditional you know, slide racking too. So think about like uh, you know when we're when you're doing like a one-handed one-handed clearance or one-handed sure. whatever Absolutely. thing you're doing where you have to rack the slide, right? And you're, and so you're, you're able to hook it on your belt, yeah, or your pocket, super or easy on on the edge of something a lot easier. I mean, we got to be mm-hmm. mindful of things like like uh, you know, is there always a potential if I'm like smashing my red dot into a concrete you know corner of a wall like that's probably not best practice we'd like to think that our red dots are you know tough enough to be able to handle that but uh we need to be realistic about things but it does give me other opportunities for easier manipulation and and some guns that would be a bigger deal than others like just by nature of the way stock sites are often shaped um, mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of guns on the range that the, the the stock sights are pretty aggressive in allowing you to hook them onto something and rack that slide with it. Um, where we've seen other guns where that's like it's the inverse. The sl- the sights are almost designed to make it impossible <laughs> to to hook them onto something and rack. So I'm thinking the, the uh, I don't know about the new shield, but the the original you know, Smith and Wesson uh, shields, those MMP shields, the stock sights were they just had the sloping terrible. motion. That, that yeah. just made it impossible to hook that sucker on and lack, you know, we had, we've had students yeah. who've worked that one over. So anyway, just another little side note about, you know, we're talking about racking a slide and the, re- the, the, the influence that the red dot has on making that easier. Definitely a big deal when you're, when you're trying to do that one hand and you're putting that on a belt or a, a corner of an object or something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So an, an interesting note, I think, generally speaking, is that regardless of which type of malfunction we are t- we're talking about, type one, type two, or type three, all of them involve racking a slide at some point. Yes. Like you're going to have to cycle the slide. So I think that there's something noteworthy about this. You know, we're, we're focused on a type one failure, but regardless of the failure, you're all, you know, you're always going to have to rack the slide. And, and, and I think the, the takeaway for me here is a, Hey, yeah, we have an industry best practice for this thing, but that may not make it the best thing for you and having a, a pathway, a methodology that you can go test it with some legitimate analytical thing to, to actually determine which is better and which is not that that's where the real value lies. So like to, to go replicate your experiment, Riley, for, for me, right. Or for any mm-hmm. person listening to this, well, there's, there's a couple ways it can be done. First you could have, you could do it in live ammo with a shot timer. Uh, and you could, you know, I guess you would need dummy ammo would be ideal. You know, you'd feed dummy ammo uh, into the mag uh, right. along with a couple of live rounds and you'd go bang, bang, click, right? Perform whatever clearance you're testing in that moment and then go bang. And then you're looking at the split time provided by the shot timer. Uh, or you can do it in dry fire. To, to execute this in dry fire, you really need LASR software. Mm-hmm. And Ideally, you need a laser cartridge, like the laser dot from Radiant Gear, the one you 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 were using, which for obvious reasons we're partial to, mm-hmm. um, and and because you need something that's measuring the time. In this case, it'd be LASR, uh, but in order for LASR to measure that time, it needs the 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 dot, you know, from the shot right. to measure the shot. So those would be the tools someone would need to replicate this. That's right. Uh, you could do it with a cert pistol, where you kind of more simulate the actions. Uh, but I'd be, you know, but you wouldn't want to do like a crazy ton of repetitions, like, you know, hundreds or thousands of repetitions, because that may create some laziness in terms of like how tightly you actually grasp the slide. Since you, you know, you, you basically would be 
grasping the cert pistol slide and then allowing your hand to, you know, slide off of it and sort of simulate the motion or whatever. Well, you're also um, not getting any measurement relative to it actually working. I mean, if, if people well, go watch the shooter ready you, challenge you, video, you, I believe that you could prove out a lot of the same things I proved out uh, by simulating that motion, the racking motion, um, because again, you're going to see differences in efficiency between how far your hand has to travel to, you know, get off the grip, to slide working slide back on grip but agreed it's not a, it's not ideal for testing this I, i'm just saying you know like if you're sitting there and like you're like well i got a cert pistol and i got lasr but i don't want to have to go buy a you know ready or a yeah ready up gear laser dot trainer which by the way aren't very expensive they're very reasonably priced um there, there, there's ways you could at least simulate and work through the motions um but you know, the better thing in your case would be if you really want to test its effectiveness, test it live fire when you next go to the range. Sure. Yeah. Pick up, you know, I, I think that as as serious dry fire practitioners, it's good to have, uh, you know, a variety of tools that can serve different purposes. Uh, and that's, that's my, that's absolutely been my belief for a long time. That's why I have cert pistols. That's why I have laser dot trainers. That's why I have cool fire trainer, even, you know, and things of that nature. There's, there's different tools for different purposes. Uh, so I can practice all these different things and in different ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a pretty, that's a pretty solid overview. And I think the other benefit, I guess I'll just throw out there. We're, we're focused on type one malfunctions, but type two malfunctions are cleared the same way. So while the, the feeling, thinking, right, you're not, you're not getting a click, you're getting a dead trigger because the slide's not in battery in a failure to uh, eject, mm -hmm. but we're the clearance of pipes, right, right. So we, pipe. got, we got bra typically spent brass that's stuck in the action of the pistol somehow. Yeah, right, right, right. So your stovepipe, your type two failure, your you know, whatever. Your, I don't know if there's other words for that, but but the clearance method is the same. You know, we still generally the industry teaches to tap and rack, and the you know that it's the same thing as a type one failure. You you obviously have a different uh, stimulus to yep. indicate you have a malfunction, yep. but the clearance technique is the same. So yep. this this could equally apply there. And I would know, I would go so far as to say that in the case of a failure to eject malfunction, it's almost even more relevant to not tap the magazine because it's usually it's not the magazine, you know, not it, it the magazine not being seated is not the cause of that failure to eject. Eject in most cases, we're talking you have a failure to eject usually because the slide doesn't travel all the way to the rear or doesn't travel to the rear with enough energy to reliably cause that piece of brass to hit the ejector and pop it out. That's usually where that failure to eject malfunction comes from. And it's quite often a, a function of an imbalance of sorts between ammunition power, how much power it generates to move that slide to the rear and the resistance of that slide, both in terms of the weight of the slide and the stiffness of the spring, the recoil spring holding it forward. That's, that's usually where those failures to eject come from. And so in that case, it, it almost even makes more sense to, in the case of a failure to eject, to just simply, you know, grab the slide and pull it to the rear and clear the malfunction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I, but I, 
I guess I, uh, I guess I, what am I trying to say? The, the other kind of I'll call it age old debate, you know, in the malfunction world, and I know we've talked about it before, is that there, there's a there's a group of people who are of the opinion that a person should diagnose sure. their malfunction, figure out which one it is, and then and then immediately perform the clearance appropriate for that malfunction. Mm-hmm. And then you have the other kind of group of people, which I think is probably the larger, bigger group, as in, in my perception, of people who are kind of of the opinion that, well, the vast majority of malfunctions are solved doing you know this thing. So just if you have a malfunction, do that. And if it doesn't work, then move on to this other thing that's going to clear sure. the other malfunction. I, I like automated processes built into the subconscious because I think that makes life easier, simpler, more trouble-free, and, and easier to execute. Um, at the same time, there are people that I trust significantly that are on both sides of that particular debate. As far as something goes awry, I'm going to, you know, check and, and see what the problem is and solve it versus having certain automated processes, uh, meaning that, you know, we have malfunction immediately execute a so-called tap rack or just a rack in my case. Uh, and then if that doesn't fix it, move on to the next thing. Cause what I can tell you is that it's going to take me 0.5 to 0.6 seconds to just simply do a rack versus if I actually stop and look and check gun and then go, Oh, that's this versus that. And, you know, then apply the correct uh, clearing, you know, that's at least a second and probably closer to two. So, um, yes, I, I, I like being practiced to a level where anytime gun doesn't go bang, I like to just rack the slide, try to clear the malfunction. And if that doesn't clear it, then it typically means like a failure to extract or type three type malfunction. And, and in that case, and I've got a, you know, when this episode's not about that, but I've got a even more, um, I've got a more efficient way of solving that as well than the classic, you know, lock slide back, strip mag, rack, 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 put fresh mag or new or mag back in rack, you know, like that can be done very fast if you, if you're well practiced, but there's more, there's still more efficient ways. Of but but the that. point is that's another debate that can be solved with this kind of analytical approach, because mm-hmm. to, to kind of make it clear for those who don't understand what we're going at here. A type three malfunction has a different clearance method, right? Just a traditional tap rack won't clear it. A failure to extract the empty shell casing and then cycling a new round into the chamber, running into the back of the empty shell casing that's not supposed Mm -hmm. to be there causes a malfunction that can't be cleared that way. And so the, the argument by some would be, well, if I perform my traditional tap rack clearance, find it doesn't work, and then move on to my type three failure clearance, then I've wasted unnecessary time. I could have saved that time by first just identifying that it was a type three failure and going directly to the type three clearance. Whereas the argument you're making, which is the the camp I find myself in, is that the time it takes me to diagnose which type of failure I have is also wasted. And arguably that's slower than me just performing the type one clearance to begin with. And then determining that because it failed, I need to move on to the type three clearance anyway. So I, I think that's another thing that a person could use this analytical approach with LASR and uh, dummy ammo. No, I'm ta- I'll come back to that in a moment. Or live live ammo, or, or excuse me, LASR with uh, laser cartridge or live fire with a shot timer. Now, I think 
this would be an interesting test, Riley, to do sometime because the way you'd want to do this is in order to test it, you would need to not know what kind of malfunction you're going to have. So you would have a partner, sure. right? And I would t- you'd give me two <laughs> mags. And in one mag, I would load dummy ammo. and the other mag, I would own, load a type three malfunction round. And, you know, you would blindly put one in the gun and not know what type of malfunction you're about to get. And that's mm-hmm. how we would have to test that so that you would determine. And that would be, you know, then, then we don't really have LASR capabilities. So that would be difficult to test that in, in dry fire. But in live fire, we could run that test and see which is, mm-hmm. you know, which is faster, identification and then run proper clearance or just run type one clearance and then type two if necessary or type three if necessary. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think that we've hashed this out. I think pretty well done it justice. I again, encourage people to go view the video at shooterradychallenge.com, The most recent one. Uh, in this case, it's titled failure to fire malfunction, April, 2021. Um, it, it's okay to ag- agree to disagree on some of these things. You know, like Mark here in the comments saying that he still likes a tap. That's okay. I mean, I've, I think I've prevent presented very sound logic as to the way I do things at the same time. Everything about this episode and everything about that shooter ready challenge episode is to get you thinking about this, how we solve these malfunctions, giving you the tools to evaluate them in a in as objective uh, of a methodology as possible in terms of measuring the data that comes out of these different techniques and then evaluating it and selecting the best one for you. So uh, that's that's what I hope you get out of this. Uh, I want shooters, and I kind of feel like this is my next phase in life as an instructor, is sort of like, let me present to you the principles, like the guiding principles and the, uh, uh, let's, let me just kind of open the door to, the, to this world of discovery. Like here's the guiding principles that kind of keeps you on the path, but now experiment and try things and ultimately, you know, find your own best technique. What matters the most is proficiency with technique and not specific techniques themselves. All right. As long as we're being intellectually honest with ourselves and not trying to justify things like, like if you have something that's significantly different time-wise, and I mean, unless you have really, really, really good uh, good reasons why you should go with the slower technique, um, you're probably just justifying, you know, that you prefer this other thing, but without any real solid evidence or, or reason as to why. Does that make sense? And so, so be honest with yourself. To be honest, we need good data. We need to trust the data, and and at, the, and at the same time, we still have to look at the whole picture and how we operate as shooters and as gun carriers, and then pick the thing that works best for us. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, one thing I failed to mention earlier in the episode, and I, and I intended to, there's actually two things, but first, I want to give Bill Blowers at Tap Rack Tactical uh, uh, some credit because it was a video that he did a few years back that opened that first opened my eyes to the idea because I was still stuck in the well tap rack. Well, why do you do tap rack? Well, you got to make sure the magazine's seated and you know that kind of thing. And that's the way we've always done it, and that's it's just the right way. Um, the truth of the matter is, is it's good to always challenge things that we've held as being the truth, even if it's been for decades. All right, because 
there are new and different and better ways of doing things that are discovered all the time. It's hard to imagine sometimes in the case of shooting a handgun because we feel like we're at this pinnacle moment in history where, I mean, we, we have so many amazing examples of shooters that, you know, like it just feels like we've already tested and tried all these different things, but sometimes it's good to challenge assumptions. So I got to I got to give credit to Bill Bob, Bill Blowers. He's always teased a little bit about his company name being Tap Rack Tactical when he now teaches or practices no tapping. <laughs> but he's a good dude and he's a really amazing instructor and I I can't recommend him. Any, I've taken a class from him and can't recommend him any higher. Uh, the other thing is, as I meant, meant, meant to mention earlier, at the, really at the beginning of the show, was a reminder, in case you missed episode 500, when we explained the, not really format changes, but just a little bit of a different way of doing the episode counts at this point. Uh, we just, we got to episode 500, which is an amazing benchmark for us. We're, we're you know, really excited and happy and proud to, to have you know, been able to stick with this for that long and still have people listening to us. Actually, the truth of the matter is more and more people listening to us every month, it seems. Um, but uh, it just, it kind of felt like if we just keep counting up, it's just going to become a very unwieldy number. And uh, I mean, it'd be cool to say episode 1000 one day, but uh, following the the example of a few other podcasts out there that are separating out their episodes and their content more into like a season type format uh we we elected as a team here to to do that so uh we are counting all first 500 episodes of season one all right and from here on forward we are now in season two and then season three and so on and so forth and those seasons will will change each quarter of the year so when we hit the end of june that'll be the end of season two and it'll be a little bit of a shorter season two than what is typical for, for like say season three and season four later this year will be a full three months and and we're starting at the beginning of May. So, um, but that's, that's a little bit of a tweak. So from here on out, and part of that's just, we feel like that's going to help listeners make our content a little bit more digestible. I think some listeners that come into this a little bit late will not feel maybe as obligated to try to go back to episode one and go all the way through from the beginning, but maybe it'll be more inclined to be like, well, let's just go back to season, the beginning of season two and start from there and so on and so forth. So that's, that's the approach anyway. Uh, let us know if you, like or dislike that, you know, feedback's always nice, but that, I think that's what we're going to go with, uh, especially now that we're actually, by the time this is published, it's, we're kind of going to be somewhat, we're committed. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this has been season two, episode one. Um, oh, I've also mentioned that I, I, we'll play with this and this is something certainly that could be changed a little bit, but my idea right now is that at the end of a season, we'll kind of recap a season and pull highlights from, you know, season two and season three. And I think that'll be just a fun way of, of overviewing uh, what we covered in a season. And, you know, that way too, if someone's just getting into started with the podcast and they're kind of in the middle of a season, you know, Hey, we'll do a recap and they can get the highlights. And if they just want to move forward with us from there, that is not a problem. That is a okay. Anyway, so guys, it brings us to the end of another episode here. Again, today's episode is sponsored by, Next Level Training, nextleveltraining.com is where you can find them, makers of the fine cert pistols, and also 
laserapp.com. That is L-A-S-R-A-P-P.com. Laserapp.com. Proprietors of the fine LaserX software, which is my software of choice for tracking metrics and data and results in dry fire practice. So with that, Jacob, any last words? Malfunctions, they do happen. Yes, they do. They do indeed. Well, oh, later this afternoon, so a little preview. I'm really excited we're going to have Steve Moses on a podcast. Steve Moses from Palisade Training Group. He's also one of our featured instructors at the 2021 Guardian Conference. He's an all-around great guy, but he's also a really excellent instructor and very smart and uh, articulate in how he explains and describes things. And so I think you're really going to enjoy episode two of season two later today to be recorded live here, guys. Again, if you like following us on Facebook or YouTube, we'll be right back here at 4 p.m. Mountain Time with Steve Moses. Until then, a reminder to train right, train often, and train safe so you can fight hard, fight fast, and fight true. Take care.